Most of the U.S.-Soviet confrontations during the Cold War were between diplomats, not soldiers. U.S. and Soviet nuclear arsenals discouraged armed conflict, so superpower competition played out in other arenas. One of the most important was diplomacy. U.S. diplomats came off the Cold War on a roll, and they continued rolling. After the Soviet Union fell, they built new relationships across Eastern Europe and in the former Soviet republics, and they embraced Middle East peace with renewed enthusiasm. U.S. diplomacy built the coalition that pushed Iraq out of Kuwait, ended a war in the Balkans, helped bring peace to Northern Ireland, and brought Israeli and Palestinian officials into direct peace talks for the first time in history. But after 9-11, that shifted. U.S. policymakers came to see the threats the country faced as too urgent for the slow back and forth of diplomacy and too vital to brook any compromise. Warriors came to the fore and diplomats receded. Brian Kutulis is a senior fellow and vice president of policy at the Middle East Institute. During the Clinton administration, he served in the National Security Council, the State Department, and the Department of Defense. He says that the experience of Richard Holbrook, the chief architect of the Dayton Accords that ended war in the Balkans in late 1995, demonstrates this shift. When you think about someone like Ambassador Richard Holbrook, who truly was the lead in strategy and diplomacy to end wars in Bosnia and Kosovo, he even called General Wesley Clark his wingman back in the 1990s. Flash forward 10 years later, and 10 years after basically the over-militarization of U.S. foreign policy, post 9-11, Holbrook's back in another job as a special rep on Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I think quite literally, David Petraeus referred to Holbrook as his wingman. Holbrook's fall from having a wingman to being a wingman is larger than Holbrook. While the story of that shift goes beyond the Middle East, there are few regions around the world where the change has been so acute or so consequential. Welcome to the U.S. and the Middle East podcast miniseries. In this series, we talk to leading experts and former policymakers about the role of U.S. power and influence in the Middle East. I'm your host, John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we look at the United States diplomatic toolkit in the Middle East and the successes and failures of U.S. diplomacy in the region. In the second episode of the series, I noted that the United States has 85 soldiers for every foreign service officer around the world. By 2009, the year that Richard Holbrook was appointed special representative to Afghanistan, some U.S. policymakers thought that ratio needed to change. And the incoming Obama administration had big plans for U.S. diplomacy. That year, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton launched the first Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review, modeled after the Department of Defense's Quadrennial Defense Review. The review was meant to provide a blueprint for the United States to elevate the role of diplomacy and the State Department and to put diplomats on par with the military in advancing U.S. national security objectives. 
But the review faced serious obstacles and the implementation of its recommendations faced serious ones too. The problem isn't merely that the State Department isn't set up for quick change. Katula says it's not really set up for change at all. There often isn't the sort of management and learning culture in organizations like the State Department that need to be in place to actually help them perform their jobs better. The fun topic that people talk about every once in a while is how much money the Pentagon gets each year versus the State Department budget. That's like the easy criticism, right? The harder criticism is actually the State Department and many of the civilian agencies operationally don't actually do a lot of the things effectively that they're charged to do. But what exactly is the State Department and its nearly 14,000 career diplomats charged to do? Thomas Pickering had a four-decade career in diplomacy, serving as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and to six countries, including Jordan and Israel. He ended his time in government as the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, the State Department's third highest position. He says, at its heart, diplomacy is about negotiation and compromise, advancing certain U.S. interests that the United States can't give up, while conceding on others that it can. We should be judging the diplomacy on whether we can evade the trap of zero-sumism and move the process into win-winism. And the win-win has to be a mutually shared outcome in which both sides have given up significant activities in return for significant activities. For U.S. policymakers to make the call on what interests to advance and which ones to give up, they need a clear assessment of what an end goal might be. They need to know which outcomes they can live with and which ones they can't. Do we have a clear sense of our objectives? And do we have a clear sense going in of what at the end of the day might finally be acceptable and unacceptable? And indeed, part of the process of diplomacy is to so hone your thinking about outcomes that you can begin to move those objectives in the direction of a mutual win-win. That means that we have to have an ongoing diplomatic equation that can work for us over a period of time in which we can begin against the backdrop of military and other leverage to put forward what are essentially diplomatic carrots as well, or at least efforts that are disguised as diplomatic carrots to begin the process of entangling the other side in trying to defend a diplomatic outcome that they could live with. What Pickering is describing is a process where the United States sets out knowing it won't get everything it wants, but it creates an environment in which, at the end of the day, it can get what it needs. And the end of the day can sometimes be a long way off. Pickering says that the success of that looks a lot like Henry's step-by-step process in the Middle East. The Henry he's talking about is Henry Kissinger. Henry's step-by-step process in the Middle East was based on an ability to understand that abandoning zero-sumism could never be done in public and could never be explained as stepping down 
from something you had already agreed you were going to achieve, but slicing the pie in whatever shapes, horizontal or vertical, you wanted to shape it in order to achieve an objective that was reasonable taken alone, but not reasonable in terms of the whole problem. And it requires persistent agility. No particular negotiation, particularly if it's advancing, is always so static that you have always the same objectives, always the same giveaways, always the same compromises, and always the same outcomes. As Pickering tells it, diplomacy requires not only patience, persistence, and creativity, but also a clear vision of where you're ultimately trying to go. It involves giving up something you want, but can live without, to try to get something you want even more. It's about oftentimes reaching a point where neither side is happy, but each side can live with the outcome. And it's about building leverage and deploying it in calculated ways. In the decades after 9-11, that's not how the United States did most things in the Middle East. Threats were immediate and stakes were high. The last thing the United States wanted to pursue was a slow process of compromise and back and forth. And policymakers didn't see security as something on which the United States should be willing to compromise anyway. We have an essential conservative bias in our approach to international relations, particularly to security or security-tainted issues. And as a result, we are prepared to always choose the hardest line initiative to avoid the question of losing when it comes to a security issue. Over the past two decades, that's led to an approach in the Middle East that favored attempts for immediate solution and what Pickering calls zero-summism over the slow compromises of diplomacy. We take it that our superior military power operating in its own environment can always produce the resolution of the problem like dropping a ripe fig from the tree into our lap without any political preparation, without any real shaping, and without any of the durability that is so hard won over long and confidential diplomatic processes. Pickering sees the attraction of military solutions, but he doesn't think most of them are really solutions. One is a very costly, very difficult, very crapshoot type process. And the other is an absolute failure because of structural and strategic misestimations of what a military victory can produce. Catullus thinks that the near-term effectiveness of U.S. military action blinded policymakers to the long-term consequences of a military-led strategy. When you have an effective tool, and certainly the military is effective, certainly the intelligence agencies, especially the CIA with drones and other things, were seen to be able to have an impact on security. I think it's intellectually hard for people to go and say, okay, this is how we could use diplomacy to shape the politics in other countries or shape trends so that we can get more done. Natalie Tocci is an Italian scholar who served as a key advisor to the European Union's chief diplomat. She argues that the United States was right to use force to respond to 9-11, but that it relied too much on it. 
Clearly, the terrorist threat requires a military response, but I think that the kind of military response that there was was not one that was limited to the terrorist threat. Had it been that way, we would be talking about very different things than what we've seen in the last 20 years. There was this kind of moment of hubris in the United States and the assumption that through the military instrument, you could also achieve long-lasting political results. And that experiment failed. It failed because when you try to force an outcome on others, it's hard to make it sustainable. And a large power disparity between the United States and its adversaries can make winning even harder. The other side has only to avoid losing, and we have to win. And we have to win so big that we can dictate the outcome on the ground, and not only that, make it stick forever. Zero sum short of a military victory which decimates the other side on the ground and allows you to dictate the terms of the outcome is not very good. And it has a very low durability in terms of being able to stick itself on a permanent basis to a settlement which will both endure and prosper. Brian Katula says that a lot of what we think about as U.S. diplomatic failures in the Middle East occurred when diplomacy wasn't really done at all. A lot of the failures in my mind link to the use of military force and the lack of any sort of integrated strategy that put the use of force within a context of a diplomatic or political strategy, you know, the so-called what used to be called smart power in this town. Pickering agrees that the military has a role to play in diplomacy. But it is not the role taught in all the military schools. It is a role to be available when you need it to exercise discrete, well-defined leverage up to a particular point to enhance your capacity to affect positively the outcome of diplomatic engagement over a significant period of time to get where you're going. Tucci agrees, and she thinks the United States mostly had the balance right into the early 1990s. There was obviously a major military involvement. The first Gulf War... But there was also an equally significant uh, diplomatic involvement. And you actually saw the way in which hard power underpinned, in many respects, sort of diplomacy and soft power, and, and the two were mutually reinforcing. And then the United States used the momentum from the 35-country coalition that united to liberate Kuwait to make unprecedented diplomatic progress on Israeli-Palestinian peace. But 9-11 happened, and the United States rushed troops into Afghanistan and later Iraq. The mantra of the U.S. military approach was shock and awe. And for a time, both efforts seemed to be going well. Remember that mission accomplished banner on the aircraft carrier? The time seemed to call for maximalist goals and unbridled ambition. It was a very different age. And now... Two decades of fighting but not winning in the Middle East has changed the United States and its approach to the world. I realize it's a very Eurocentric thing to say that American foreign policy is Europeanizing. It, you know, it, it is basically moving towards a situation whereby there is an assessment of the U.S.'s own power, which is in absolute terms still very strong, but it's in relative decline. 
And that essentially means that there is less reliance on the military instrument. Tucci says that feeling goes beyond merely a hesitancy to use the military. Now we're back in a situation where, in a sense, there is less military involvement, but also less diplomatic and political involvement. So on one level, you can say that there is a balance that is being reconstituted, but it's being reconstituted at a sort of lower ambition, steady state equilibrium. But where that leaves the United States and the world isn't entirely a good thing. Has the United States been helpful in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I think actually it's been a good part of the reason why there is no viable two-state solution in Israel-Palestine. But at the same time, given how far things have gone, would at this stage the U.S. stepping out of the scene, would that be conducive to getting to a two-state solution in Israel-Palestine? Well, probably not. Because the United States has been so entangled in Middle Eastern politics. And part of the reason why we are where we are today because of that involvement, simply subtracting the US from the equation doesn't necessarily mean that everything falls magically into place. And is United States that acts more like Europe in the Middle East good for Europe? For Europe, I would say it's yes and no. It would be a straight yes if Europeans were in the position of filling the vacuum that the U.S. is leaving. And I wish I could say that that is the position that we're in, but but we're not. (laughs) What is clear is that that vacuum that is being left is being filled not by Europeans, but by others. It's Russia, it's Iran, it's Israel, it's the Gulf, I mean, it's Turkey, you name it. Where Tucci sees a vacuum, Brian Katrulis sees opportunities, especially if the United States is able to up its diplomatic game. Now, there's an effort to at least de-escalate and reduce tensions, to end boycotts, to open ties. Build on it, U.S. diplomats. Build on that and actually figure out, okay, we like what you're doing here. How can the U.S. be a part of this and be a key role in it that's not simply just on the security front? Increase security cooperation, one aspect of it, but then promote things like greater economic interdependence. And Katulis thinks part of upping the diplomatic game is also recognizing the role that Americans who aren't foreign service officers play in diplomacy. Where I started my career in the Middle East, working in places like the West Bank and Gaza and Egypt for a non-governmental organization called the National Democratic Institute. And I believe what we were doing and what those groups still try to do is that type of diplomacy of helping try to plant seeds of not only skills, but then relationships, a key part of diplomacy, and then ultimately trying to get things done is building a thickness of relationships and ties between countries. So outside of what our State Department and USAID and the typical structures of the US government, there's a whole other part of American society that in some ways, you know, is very much independent, but in some ways is synced with it, that shapes the conditions more often for better rather than worse. But sometimes there are things that backfire. But that's that's another type of engagement that doesn't necessarily produce quick wins, but produces the networks of relationships that I think become essential at times of crises. Tocci says the real shift that's going on is an approach that includes 
more limited objectives and an assumption that it's not really up to us to determine the fate of the world. It's really about trying to induce regional powers to find their own entente. And that's really the aim of diplomacy. So rather than defining what the solution is, simply seeing to what extent you can create a conducive context for regional powers to agree on whatever they will agree on. But that sounds a little bit like passivity, and that's not what Catullus has in mind at all. He thinks that U.S. diplomats have to be more active and more self-critical. There's not enough of an after-action assessment or analysis of what state does. To this day, more than 10 years after the Arab uprising started, I don't know of any study, inside or outside of government, that looked at how the civilian agencies of government, especially the State Department, the diplomats, responded to that. That's a key part of the challenge in the culture. And I think if part of your job and you're trained as a foreign service officer, a key part of it is just is to report back and to convey messages. Some people do more than that and are more effective at it, but there isn't as much of a active learning culture that helps Im- improve the processes there. And Pickering thinks that the United States needs to do a lot more to sharpen its thinking. He cites a comment attributed to President Harry Truman, who was asked what America's vital interests are. And he said only two, survival and prosperity. And if Truman was right, he argues. In the Middle East and elsewhere, we have for the large part of the time been involving ourselves very deeply and very expensively in what I would call high-level second-order issues that do not directly affect our survival and our prosperity. Some of our involvement has come from the responsibilities we attribute to being a great power, in our sense that we have to be seen more than just the prisoner of our own very narrowest definition of what it is that we should most seek to achieve or avoid in the globe. Our mistake, he thinks, is that we've forgotten about the distinction, and we keep accumulating things we describe as vital interests and behave as if they are vital interests, but are not. So that hangs out there around our necks, and this is what I would call a strategy deficit. Over the last two decades, the United States has emphasized military solutions to problems in the Middle East. The pendulum has swung back, and now there are widespread calls for more U.S. diplomacy. Diplomacy is a very different process with different goals, different outcomes, and different timelines. While it requires a reinvigorated State Department, it also requires harder thinking about what really matters to the United States. In short, calling for less military engagement and more diplomatic engagement is not simply an answer to a problem. Instead, it highlights the importance of answering hard questions that the United States hasn't addressed for a very long time. Next time on the podcast, we look at U.S. soft power efforts in the Middle East and the mark that U.S. ideals and culture have left on the region. This is the United States in the Middle East podcast miniseries. 
I'm your host, John Alterman. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, you can subscribe to Babbel on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts.